Good morning, Four Corners. It's a blessing to see your faces. I know that we don't see everyone's face uh, who is a part of Four Corners. Some of the faces are back there in the rooms, some upstairs, I suppose, um, and many at home. But we are nonetheless very excited to gather insofar as we can here as a church and uh, to praise God together. Even though we're singing softly, we're standing and contemplating God's Word sung together. And so we praise God for the opportunity to do this once again and to come underneath His Word. That's, uh, this is another portion of our service where we worship God. This is not uh, distinct, really, in that way from the rest of the service. This is another act of our worship. We worship God as we love Him with our minds, as we sit and listen to a sermon. I was talking with our, our children, well, particularly my son, uh, as we were watching the sermon on Sundays in front of the screen and just trying to encourage him to, uh, to learn to sit through preaching, to learn to listen to preaching. It's one of the hardest things, and I think that's why so many in our culture uh, are, uh, uh, people talk about, you know, 20-minute, 25-minute sermons because people's attention spans just aren't there. Of course, we struggle with that. But training our children to listen to preaching. In the age of the Puritans, sometimes they would sit for hours listening to sermons. And they were trained to do that from childhood. To listen to the Word of God. To think about what was being said. To put it together. And to meditate on it as it was being heard. And so we are grateful once again to come together and sit underneath God's Word as we read it, as we hear it preached, and as we sing it. Today we begin a new chapter in Romans. Uh, We are going through the book of Romans, and we have reached the beginning of the second chapter. So if you would go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. This is the passage that will occupy our attention I was recently telling someone here at our church that I do sometimes miss, greatly actually, miss preaching through Genesis. Uh, I would say probably one of the most exciting things that I've done is preach through the book of Genesis. And part of the reason I miss it so much is because it, was, it has been since really I was a child, it has been one of my favorite books in the Bible And it is filled with stories of God's power and faithfulness. God just shines through all of Genesis. And and as I mentioned many times as we were going through it, just the striking ways in which Christ is present in the book of Genesis. Whether we're talking about uh, let us make man in our own image, let us. Or we're talking about the, the theophanies or the types all throughout, or the prophecies, all throughout the book of Genesis, so many different ways that Christ is present in this first book of the Bible. And, of course, just on a, on a general level, it's exciting to preach through narrative, to tell the story. A much, most of the Bible is narrative, telling the glories of God, telling the mighty deeds of God. And so to be able to, to preach through that is exciting. But in the same way, that Genesis takes us straight to the foundation of the Bible. Romans takes us to the very center of the Bible. The gospel. 
probably the fullest explanation we have of the gospel in all of Scripture is in Romans. Many other places, let's not overinflate the significance of Romans at the expense of other books of the New Testament or the Bible for that matter. We find the gospel throughout and we think of uh, books like the Gospel of John and Ephesians, Colossians. Uh, we think of First and Second Corinthians and many other places where there is just so much rich gospel material, but probably the fullest presentation, most multifaceted and in-depth explanation that we have of the gospel is in Paul's letter to the Christians at Rome. The gospel, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the message concerning the Son of God in power, Jesus Christ. Christ our Lord, the glorious message of how God saves sinners through Christ. That's the message of Romans. That's the message of all of the New Testament. And that is what is anticipated in the Old Testament. And even as Paul will say in Galatians, preached beforehand there to Abraham in the promise of a seed. But we have it here. The gospel. So clear. And Paul begins his presentation of the gospel or good news with the bad news. You've heard me say that over and over again each week, and you will continue to hear me say that because there's a a lot of bad news. As we go through the first three chapters of Romans, we see the layers and extent of the bad news. Paul must begin there. We are unrighteous, condemned sinners, in need of a righteous Savior. The gospel sparkles where the need for righteousness is most apparent. Where we realize how much we are in need of a Savior, we delight in the Savior. We treasure the Savior because He has saved us from much. We recognize that the one who's been saved from much, who is cognizant of that, is going to celebrate that salvation all the more. Over the last few weeks, we've seen this bad news in high resolution. Chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, dark pit that it is, darker than the pit Joseph was thrown into, is one of the major passages in the Bible for the doctrine of human sinfulness. So if you go through a systematic theology and you read the portion of that theology on sin, the doctrine of sin. Romans chapter 1, 18 to 32 is a, a, a high point. <laughs> it's a, uh, not quite the way to put it. But Romans chapter 1, 18 to 32 is one of the most significant passages in the Bible for telling us about sin. The extent of it, the depth of it. We've seen how human beings suppress God's revelation in nature. How we fail to give God glory and thanks how we replace God with idols of various kinds. I tell you often that my wife Jennifer and I like to watch little documentaries at night. and We've gone from the, the Egyptians now on Disney Plus to the Greeks. And so now we're watching documentaries on the history of the Greeks. And it's amazing. It doesn't take long before they start pulling out those little statues, those Mycenaean statues of the most ancient Greeks 
prostrated themselves down before and prayed to, like the crocodile and hawk and so forth, gods of the Egyptians. That is what human beings do. All of us, all times. We suppress God's revelation, fail to give God glory and thanks, replace Him with idols, and as a result, our hearts and our thinking become futile, foolish, and dark. And we've seen, as we've gone through the end of chapter 1, we've seen God's just judgment on this, that God hands us over, as Paul says, God hands us over to sin, to perversity, and the proliferation of sin. Sin in us. Notice how much at the end of Romans 1, Paul talks about our desires, our lusts, our hearts, our thinking. This is the language of the psyche. This is the language of the internal workings of the human being. And outside of us, that list at the end of Romans 1 that Ken referenced, all of those sins of interrelationship between human beings, the envy, the murder, the strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossiping, slandering, being haughty and boastful. The list that we find at the end of Romans 1 is overwhelming. And as I said last week, it takes quite a long time to even read it. It's much like what we find in Galatians 5, And other parts of the New Testament where these long lists of sins are put forward. And as we come to Romans 1, we get get the longest and we just keep reading and we keep reading and it is overwhelming. But it is also illuminating. One of the things that you will find if you read apologetic literature is that the Bible is self-authenticating. I've talked about this a number of times that... The Bible does not stand or fall on what some archaeologist finds in Palestine or what some textual critic digs up in Egypt in terms of manuscripts or what some historian can construe about what happened when and where. The Bible does not stand or fall on that kind of evidence. The Bible stands in its own right. It shines forth to use John Piper's language, a peculiar glory. A self-authenticating glory that screams, it is the word of God. And I think when we come to a passage like the end of Romans 1, we consider how much it matches what we see in our lived experience. I mean, when we read that list of sins at the end of Romans 1, do we not see that in our world? Do we not see that in the nooks and crannies of our hearts? Does it not in the most penetrating, illuminating, accurate way show forth the reality of our world? That's another aspect of the self-authenticating nature of the Bible is that it does capture in the most accurate, penetrating way the truth of the world as it is and as we come to experience it. Now, remember where Paul is headed in all of this. As we've been going through this bad news, where is Paul headed? Chapter 3. Verses 10 to 11, what then 
are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. That is where Paul is headed. As he unpacks human sinfulness, as he gives us an explanation of the bad news, that's where Paul is headed, all Jews and Greeks together under sin. None is righteous, no, not one. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. So, at this point, what have we covered? We have seen the sin of the Greeks. The Gentiles, the pagan, non-Jewish nations of the world. We have this clearly in view. When we come to the end of chapter 1, we've been given a very in-depth presentation of the sin of the Gentile nations. Paul is looking out over Greco-Roman history. He's looking out as he's writing this from Corinth in AD 57. He's looking at the nasty idolatry, the temple prostitutes, The paganism all around him in Corinth. And he's thinking about all that is surrounding his readers in the city of Rome. This pagan wickedness. But what about the Jews? What about the Jews? What about those in Paul's own nation? Those who are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's fitting for us to do this after Genesis because we we immediately know what that entails. Those who come from the 12 sons of Jacob. Those whom God brought through Egypt and into the promised land. Those whom God sent his oracles and his prophets. Those through whom God brought the Christ. What about The Jews, they claim to hate all forms of idol worship and they decry the practices of the Greeks. So what do we do about the Jews? What does Paul have to say about them? And that's exactly what Paul turns to in chapter 2. So the title for the sermon this morning is The Self-Righteous Judge. The self-righteous judge. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're going to read chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. We've seen the wicked Gentile. Full display. Now, the self-righteous judge. This is the word of God. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges... For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume... On the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be 
revealed. You can go ahead and be seated. The self-righteous judge. Let's pray to the Lord. Ask for his blessing on our time. Ask that he would show us what is here in the text of Scripture and that he would cut us to the heart, that he would bring real change to us today and real glorying, extolling in the gospel, and that he would save those who are listening, who are undone before God, who don't, who don't know God's grace, who've never experienced regeneration, who've never been born again, that God would use this presentation of his word, of this, this gospel that we are going to read about and talk about, that he would use that to transform their heart to Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for the folks who have gathered here this morning to hear your word, to sing praises to you, to pray, to see each other in fellowship as the people of God. Lord, we thank you that we love each other. What a thing to consider. Father, in a world filled with individualism and selfishness and greed and ambition and envy, competition, that we, from various life experiences, moved here from various places, Lord, that we love each other. Where does that come from? God, from your Spirit. We don't have that in ourselves. God, we praise you for the love that you have poured out into our hearts. The love that exists eternally between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God, you have given us that love. You've assured us that you love us. You've given us that love for yourself, and you have given us that love for each other. And God, you've given us a love for your word. So we pray this morning that we would love it with our minds, that we would come to it and listen and focus. God, that you'd protect our minds from straying and being distracted. We pray that you'd protect our church from division and that we would grow ever more in this love that we have for each other, that we would show the world that Christ himself is among us in us. Father, thank you for this passage. We pray that it would be explained clearly and applied, that your spirit would apply it in very specific ways, and that we would leave here fed upon your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So three things to notice this morning about this self-righteous judge. First, his hypocrisy. Second, his heart. And finally, his heap. His hypocrisy, his heart, and his heap. So let's look first at his hypocrisy. So who is Paul introducing in this section? Imagine for a moment that Paul is out in the public square preaching chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. So Paul is giving his in-depth explanation of verses 18 to 32. He's blasting 
the wickedness of the pagan nations, saying that they are under God's wrath. Then imagine that there is an unsaved Jew standing nearby who is listening to Paul's sermon. There's Paul preaching, blasting. And I mean, make no mistake about it, verses 18 to 32 is a blast. He is railing against the wickedness of the pagan nations. Rightly so. But then imagine this unsaved Jew standing nearby. What is his reaction to Paul's sermon? Amen. You tell him, Paul. God's going to get those wicked Gentiles. Maybe even this Jew is thinking about the different rulers of the pagan world who have assaulted the Jewish people. All throughout history, those magistrates and those rulers who have come and conquered the Jews, all this, all this pagan baggage in the Jew thinking in his mind, yes, yes, God is going to destroy those wicked pagans. But then imagine that Paul turns his attention entirely to this man, to this individual, and begins to preach only at him. He's done. He's done with the Gentile bit. He's done with all that perversion and proliferation. Now he turns to the one man standing there, a Jewish man, and he begins to preach a new sermon to him. That's what's going on in Romans chapter 2. So what is this hypothetical Jew doing whom Paul is speaking to? What is this hypothetical Jew doing? The short answer is that he is being a hypocrite. As John Calvin very concisely says, this reproof is directed against hypocrites. That is what Paul is taking on here in chapter 2. Look at verse 1. Therefore... You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Paul is building his argument. He does not here say, you have no excuse, O Jew. He's not He's not there yet. He's getting there. He's, he's building to that point. But it is very much a Jewish person who is in mind here, or the Jewish people in general. He is building his argument towards, and notice this, you can take your finger down to verse 17, where he will explicitly address the Jew. He's moving there. He's getting there. And he says in verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew... And rely on the law and boast in God. And then look at verses 21 to 22. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? The answer to all of these questions is a resounding yes. Yes. The Jews 
God's chosen people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they think they are living on this higher moral plane. But in fact, as Paul says here, they practice the same things the Gentiles do. This would have been striking to a Jew, one of the descendants of Abraham, one of the members of the people of God who worship the true God as a people, and Paul blasting them. They too worship idols in their hearts. They too hate and mistreat others. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossiping, slandering. They too have futility, folly, and darkness in their hearts. And even the most religious among them, those quintessential, typical Jews, the the, the most outstanding among them, the scribes and the Pharisees, the Lord himself says in Matthew 23, 37, that they are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. They look really pretty on the outside, really sparkly. They look like they have it all together. Righteous, good, upstanding, upright, worshiping God. But inside they are filled with rot and decay. Much like Paul described the hearts of the Gentiles as being futile and darkened. Talking about their passions in them, their burning and all of this. So too we have rot and decay on the inside of the Jew. And Paul's point here in verse 1 is that in judging the pagans. Now note, listen to the logic here. In judging the pagans for doing wicked deeds, the sort of wicked deeds we read about at the end of chapter 1, they are in fact rendering judgment upon themselves. This is boomerang judgment. Because the deeds they are condemning are the very deeds they practice. Maybe in different forms, maybe more discreetly, but practiced none the less. They too are sinners without excuse. And as judges, they are hypocrites. They too need a savior. They too need the righteousness of God through Christ by faith. And so Paul turns from this Gentile horde and he goes right to you, old man who judge. And we know later he's talking to the Jew. Let me give you an illustration of basically what is going on here. I want to give you a picture from the Old Testament of what is going on here from 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 to 7. You've probably read this before. It is an amazing bit of Scripture. Nathan and David. David has just taken a man's wife and had him sent to the front lines to die so that he could be with her. His heart was lustful. His heart was murderous. What a passage this is. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. By the way, the Bible does not glorify its heroes. It 
That's another way we see the, the uh, purity and truth of the Scripture is that it's honest about even the best of the biblical characters. This is David. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. This is Nathan the prophet. You see David there scratching his chin, listening to the prophet. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Precious little ewe lamb. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, the precious little ewe lamb. He took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. You almost can't read this story without feeling quite a bit of emotion. I mean, it's ghastly what happens here in this this story. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. How could he do that? As the Lord lives, David said, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. I love this next sentence. Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. You did this wicked thing, David. And that's what's going on here with Paul. He's saying, as you're, as you're looking at those Gentiles, Jews listening, as you're looking at those Gentiles and you're saying, oh, 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 they deserve to die. Paul is flipping it around and saying, but you are the man. You too deserve to die. You too are a sinner before a holy God. You are the man. So what do we do with this? This judgmental hypocrisy is also a danger for Christians. Yes, it is true. Unlike this hypothetical Jew, so we don't want to make a one-to-one correspondence. And we don't want to make this sermon about judging. That's not what's in view here. It's not just about that. There's, there's deeper layers here with what's going on there with Paul's audience and with unbelieving Israel and so forth. But as we think about this judgmental hypocrisy, how do we apply that to ourselves as Christians? Unlike this hypothetical Jew, we have come face to face with our sin. We've come to recognize we are the man. We have looked to the Savior for forgiveness and we have received new hearts. And yet, as fallen people, as those who have not yet been glorified, as those who still struggle against sin, we have a fleshly propensity to judge others for what we ourselves do. And you will not find this more clearly anywhere than in marriage. I know that's the case for me. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Matthew 7, verse 3, Jesus says. So I want to ask you this question this morning. In what ways are you inflating the sins of the other 
and deflating your own sins. Because to do that is to do what this Jewish person to whom Paul is preaching is doing. It is to do what the the carnal, moralizing sinner does. Inflating other people's sins and deflating your own. And we see this, as I said before, very clearly in marriage. But in the closest relationships that we have, we are very quick to point out all the things the other is doing wrong. Listen to how Martin Luther describes the Christian. The righteous, righteous person, invariably, or the righteous people, invariably try to see their own faults and overlook those of others. That's what it looks like to be a Christian. You know, you think to yourself, what, is it, what does it really look like on the ground to be a Christian? There are many things we could say, but one of the things that Luther is drawing attention to here is that we try to see our own faults so that we might confess them, repent of them, mourn over them, deal with them, and we overlook those of others. What glory there is in that kind of life. What, what meekness, what humility, what kindness, what, what mercy, what graciousness there is in that kind of life. That's, that is the life of a Christian maturing in the Lord. So let it check you this morning. Let it check you. One of the ways you can know your spiritual health is not whether or not you're an elder or a deacon, whether or not you teach, whether or not you read the Bible through every year, whether or not you do a whole host of other things. It's things like this that help us to see ourselves in the mirror and to to really be honest, where am I spiritually? How much am I growing? Here we see. I think clearly this text also speaks to the moralizer, the cultural warrior. And all of the division in our culture over many moral issues, there are many people who are raising the Judeo-Christian flag who have dark hearts, who don't know Christ. And they're talking all about morality and what's right and what's wrong. And who we need to vote for. And what we need to fight in our society. But their hearts are dark. They don't know Christ. They're going to hell. This text speaks to such a person. Such a person who thinks because of his views or his raising or his church membership or whatever else. Baptism. Especially in our culture. Where people just get dunked at the age of five so quickly Become members of churches so quickly. Maybe, you, maybe you're one of those. You're not really a born-again Christian. You are a moralizer. You are Judeo-Christian in your ethic. But you're not a Christian. Maybe that's you. Let this text fall on you. Because that's what it's meant to do. So we see first his hypocrisy. Secondly, we see his heart, this self-righteous judge. Let's look at his heart. Look at verse 2 to the first part of verse 5. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, 
that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart. Let's just stop there. We'll cover the rest of it in a moment. How does the self-righteous judge think? How does the old self within us think in this regard? What is in his heart? And what is in our hearts when we sow to the flesh rather than the spirit? When we fail to put to death the deeds of the body? When we do not flee from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul? Well, Specifically for the Jew in Paul's day, there were at least two things going on. So here they are. In the heart, contempt and stubbornness. Contempt and stubbornness. So let's look first at contempt. Where there is knowledge, there is no excuse. We saw this back at the end of chapter 1. Remember the language of Paul? They see, they know, no excuse. In verse 1 here in chapter 2, Paul uses the same language. He, he's, try, he's making a case. It, Romans is beautiful. He's making a case, carefully constructing a case, really twofold. One, he's saying, look, all are unrighteous and all are without excuse for that unrighteousness. Therefore, all need the righteousness of God through Christ by faith. That's what Paul's doing. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. So where there is knowledge, there is no Excuse, And especially for the Jew, steeped in the Hebrew Scriptures, he or she knows that God's judgment is righteous. Right? So we're not talking just about the pagan who sees the sun and can reflect on his own soul and sees the lizard and the rainbow. We're talking about a Jew who has the entire canon of the Hebrew Scriptures before him. And Paul is saying... He or she knows that God's judgment is righteous. Literally, it is according to the truth, according to truth on those who practice such things. It is impartial. God's judgment is impartial on all people. It's based on truth. It's based on fact. But there's a problem, a big problem in the heart of the Jew. Paul's day. The Jew in Paul's day believed that they were the exception. Somehow, God would treat their sin differently. On account of Abraham, they would be treated collectively as the special people of God rather than individually as unrighteous sinners. In other words, for the Jewish thinker, for the Jewish mind, there was safety in their Jewish identity and all the blessings that came with it. And so when a Jewish hearer hears the end of chapter one, he, from his position of safety in his Jewish identity, sits upon a judgment seat, turns to the Gentile and blasts him too, because he's safe. He's a Jew. He's okay. Let me give you a few quotes to show this sense of privilege or a few little illustrations to to show this. Uh, 
early Jewish writing has these words. Listen to this. All Israelites have a share in the world to come. This was common among the rabbis. All Israelites have a share in the world to come. And there was even a tradition. Listen to this. This is so silly. There was even a tradition among the Jews that said that Abraham sat at the gate of hell. There's Abraham just in his seat right there next to the entrance to hell. And any Jew who's going to come into hell, he keeps them out. He is able, Abraham is able to keep them out of hell no matter what they've done. They're Jewish. They're a descendant of Abraham. They're about to go into hell. Abraham slams the door and says, no, you don't belong here. You're one of my seed. Sends them on. And for those of us who've been in Genesis for so long, we can understand the kind of basis for this kind of thinking. We can begin to understand the context and the background for this mindset. Very much prevalent at the time of Paul. God has poured out his favor on the Jews as a people. Fact. That's a fact. His kindness, his forbearance, and his patience. To use Paul's language here. And the response is one of presumption. Because God has been kind to us, we're okay. We're in the clear. We're okay. We are the recipients of God's kindness. We are the recipients of God's favor. They have treated God's grace throughout history with contempt. I've recently been listening. One of the, one of the best ways, I think, to go through the Bible is to listen to it because you can get much more in and you can multitask. You can do that while you're doing all sorts of things where you otherwise couldn't sit with your book open. And I've recently been listening to Judges, and it is appalling. And the book of Judges is appalling. What they do, what the Israelites do, as soon as, as, soon as Joshua and the elders die, boom, there they are. All kinds of idolatry, worshiping Baal, and the kinds of wicked deeds that we read about in Judges and the war between the Israelites, intermarrying with the Canaanites. We read about all of these things, and Judges is one of those appalling accounts. And all throughout history, God has patiently endured with his people. He's been faithful and kind. And what Paul is saying is that the Jew who thinks this way is presuming on all of that kindness, all of that patience to the Jewish people throughout history and saying, because we are the recipients of that, we're good. We're good. So that's the first, contempt. The second is stubbornness. All of God's goodness, all of his kindness towards sinners, all of his patience in executing judgment are meant to lead human beings to repentance. That's what Paul clearly says right here. To turn from idols and give God praise and thanks. But what Paul describes here is the opposite effect. The opposite of that. He says that instead of repentance, there is a kind of cozy presumption leaning on God's grace while continuing in sin a hard-hearted unwillingness to turn from sin, a hard or stubborn heart. 
like Pharaoh's heart. A heart that will not change one's mind about sin. So what about you? This is one of the reasons that Christian antinomianism or a kind of licentiousness or a kind of giving yourself over to whatever because you are, you're, you're in Christ. That kind of thinking has been abhorred throughout 2,000 years of Christian history. To think, as Paul will attack in Romans 6.1, that because of the grace of God, we just do as we please, is foolishness and is an evidence that you are likely undone. That you are likely not a believer in the first place. Because no person is saved to licentiousness. We are changed on the inside and given a heart that loves God and hates sin. That's what happens in the heart of a Christian when we are born again. And so if we are moving along, kind of presuming on God's kindness, continuing in our wickedness, this is a a moment to pray, to cry out to God, to repent, and to see that God's kindness towards us is to lead us to repentance. This means that every favor, listen to this, Christian, listen, every favor you enjoy from the hand of God, every good thing in your life, everything from a sunny day to a newborn baby, to a wonderful relationship with your spouse, to a raise in your job, or an add-on to your house, whatever, fill in the blank. All of God's worked-out kindness to us is that we might turn from sin. He allows us to experience trials that we might turn from sin, that we might see the brevity of this life, that with patience, we might endure and turn away from idolizing this life to God and through his kindness and his favors towards us that we might delight in his goodness and sing praises to his name, extol him, and consider all that awaits us in glory. All of it is meant for our repentance. So do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, Paul will say in Romans chapter 12. Do you see the good things in your life as God's stamp of approval or as an encouragement to repent? Maybe you're in sin right now. You are having an affair on your spouse. You're engaging in pornography. You're lying and cheating and stealing money. Who knows? Maybe some of these conscious Sins are present in your life even now. And maybe life's going great. And you might be tempted to think, I'm fine. I mean, I haven't, no, there's, there has been no lightning bolt. There's been no earthquake under my feet. I haven't gotten the coronavirus. I don't know however you want to think about it. I'm, I'm okay. This, this, this is all right. God, God is God's patient with me. I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. God, I'm a sinner. You just keep pressing on in sin. That is wicked. 
And that's the kind of thing that is being addressed here. Repent. That is what all of Scripture calls us to do. Turn from sin to the living God. Do not presume on the kindness of this gracious God. Because he is a judge. He is a judge. Number three, we see this morning finally his heap. The self-righteous judge. We see his hypocrisy. We see his heart. But now we see his heap. Look at the rest of verse five. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You think you're good. You're not. You're not. Paul's logic here is much like that of John the Baptist. When he sees the self-righteous religious leaders coming to his baptism at the Jordan River. Remember what Ken read earlier, Matthew 3, 9 to 10. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, listen to what John says, even now. You who presume on God's grace because you're a descendant of Abraham, you wicked hypocrite, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The fire. I remember hearing years ago, I've said this before, when we had our first child, we were living in Scotland in the city of Edinburgh, and I remember just I have very sweet memories of um, listening to, I, I basically uh, went to uh, Desiring God and I downloaded all the sermons on family and marriage and child rearing that I could find from John Piper. He was a preacher, it still is a preacher that, that I uh, have greatly benefited from. And I remember walking around the streets of Edinburgh, listening to these sermons. And I remember one sermon in particular. He talked about divorce. And he said that when he would preach, well, he was preaching this. He was preaching to his people, and he was saying to them, you think you can make this decision to get divorced, and because you are a Christian, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay for you. But what he said, he said, if you have that mindset, you are presuming on God's grace and you are very possibly on your way to hell. This is the path to hell. And he's continued to say that throughout his ministry. And it is absolutely the truth. We think because we've prayed a prayer, we think because we have this sort of feeble sense of security that we can live as we please. Sin is the way to death. Unless we are by the Spirit putting to death the deeds of the body, we have no reason to say that the Holy Spirit within us cries out, Abba, Father. Read the logic of Romans 8. The relationship between assurance of salvation and sin and the Spirit. Here, Paul has this same fire of hell in his mind. The self-righteous judge who hypocritically does the very same thing he condemns will not escape God's judgment. Instead, 
He is, while he lives, storing up a heap of God's wrath upon himself. This is amazing language. This is amazing language. The language here is striking because storing up is normally associated with treasure. It's normally associated with making deposits into a bank account. You know, if you, if you, I remember when I was a teenager, my dad would tell me, he would say, look, if you start putting away this much money when you're 18, then by the time you're 68, <laughs> of course, when you're 18 years old, it's very hard to think that way. Um, and I, I, haven't, I haven't quite followed that counsel, but probably should have. We, we tend to think about these installments into an account and it's growing and it's growing and it's growing and it's nice to watch because we've got some treasure growing there. And Jesus uses this language in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, storing up treasure in heaven. The language Paul uses here is not for treasure. He says they are storing up judgment. Imagine a little bit of dirt, another little bit of dirt, Another little bit of dirt. And when they stand before God, a massive avalanche of wrath to fall on them. This is the truth of the Bible. This is what the Bible teaches. In our watered down culture where no one talks about these things. It's all about our fulfillment in this life. There is a mountain of wrath from an angry, holy God that awaits sinners. Maybe you. Maybe you. The sum of it all is that the judge will be judged for that which he judges. That's Paul's summary of, or my summary of what Paul has here in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. The judge will be judged for that which he judges. Hell is real. God's wrath is real. The penalty for sin is real. And that's why Christ is so precious. That's why Christ is such a treasure to the one who has him. Not just because he helps us get through the rough times. That is so silly. That is so base. Yes, he helps us get through the rough times. Yes, he's with us in all things, but he saves us from the wrath of God. He absorbs the judgment of the mighty king in our place. That's why Christ is so precious. Paul refers here to the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Listen to how the prophet Zephaniah refers to this day of wrath. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. You think unbelieving hearer, that you've had rough times. Nothing you've experienced in this life will even be comparable to the distress and anguish that you will experience before the holy God. Fall on your face and trust Christ because it is coming. A day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick Darkness. This is how the prophets speak of the day of judgment in the future when God will judge all people. We will talk more about this in the next couple of weeks, but we need to remember that all people will stand before God and one day give an account for their lives. Daniel makes this point in chapter 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep 
and the dust of the earth shall awake. Some, listen to this please, some to everlasting life. Praise God. Life in Christ, with Christ. And some to shame and everlasting contempt. One of the things that is so moving and awesome in terms of the weight of it for a preacher is to think. I mean, life goes by so fast, right? We'll be gone from this earth in no time. This, is, this life's a, a breath to think that as I look at your faces, those of you just who are here this morning, that some of you could be headed to everlasting shame and contempt in hell. An awful thing. I pray that will not be you. Not because you reform your life or because you make a resolution this morning, but because you turn from sin to the living God and trust in what Jesus Christ done at the cross and in his resurrection to save sinners from God's just judgment. That that will be your response. So chapter 1 tells us that the idolatrous and perverted and hateful sinner will face the wrath of God. And now we see that the self-righteous moralizer, the unsaved cultural warrior, the critical judgmental moralist who deceptively thinks himself free of such sins will likewise face the wrath of God. There is only one hope for both. And I'll finish here with Romans 3.22. Paul gets to, oh, it's amazing when he gets to the end of all of this. When he gets to the end of all this heavy, weighty sin stuff. We come out into the open. You think about being in a forest and you come out into a field, just, just sunshine everywhere. That's what Romans 3.22 is. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe there is no distinction. That's the light. That's the light. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how it convicts us of our sin. Oh, Lord, your graciousness towards us. May we not presume on your grace. Life may be going really well right now for some of us. and We may be tempted to just cozy on in with sin. God, would your kindness and grace towards us spur us on to recognize how good you are to those who fear you and that we would repent of our sins and that we would walk with Jesus. God, help us appreciate Jesus for who he is, that he is the one who took all self-righteous judgment and perversion and all the wickedness we read in Romans 1. He took all of that for his people on the cross. We give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.